beget will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. So you were relieved from this attack by Assyria, but Hezekiah, in the future, it's not going to happen to you, but in the future, you too will be carried off, will be carried away by this superpower. Now, these superpowers such as the Assyrians were so, and the Babylonians after them, were so brutal. There's stories of them hanging their bodies of victims on poles and putting the skin of their bodies on the walls of tents, among other things. So there would have been this huge fear of these people and these invaders, these marauders that were taking over the land. However, he says to Hezekiah that it's not going to happen to you, it will happen in the future. And that's the bombshell which we lead on to in Isaiah chapter 40. So to recap, a real time of instability in the kingdom, when they started to see the kingdom being taken away and the horrific things that would happen in captivity. And he says, it's going to happen to you. So next, I want to look at who was the audience? Who was the intended audience of these words? Well, at that time, Isaiah was speaking to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and the people of that generation. However, I don't think that's the primary audience because they, like Hezekiah, would have probably had the same attitude as Hezekiah when Isaiah revealed these words to him. Hezekiah says, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. So Hezekiah is saying, okay, that's, that's fine, but you know what? I'm going to be gone after that. It's not going to affect me, uh, so I'm not, he's not too perturbed. There's no sackcloth and ashes mentioned in his response there. There should have been, uh, but there was not. So the first initial audience may have been part of it. It was certainly communicated to them, but I don't think it was, it was really the intention. The second, there's a second audience in mind, in mind here. And before I talk about the second audience, I just want to spend uh, a couple of minutes talking about this genre of writing here. We know that the Bible written over, what, 1,500 years by many different authors with the same message, but it has different genres within it. So here we have um, a, an oracle of salvation. This is prophecy. So how do we read when we come across prophecy um, in the Bible? How do we read that? Well, we have to read it as part fulfilled then, and of course it, it would be fulfilled pretty soon after, but there's going to be a realization at some point in the future. So you can see it as this kind of, this gradual uh, process of fulfillment rather than a single act of fulfillment. So this is, this is how, how we look at that. Part fulfillment then, but full fulfillment in the future. So that leads me then to the second audience. And the second audience in mind here are the people of Judah who were taken into captivity into Babylon. In 587, Isaiah's prophecy comes true. Of course, that's what makes Isaiah a true prophet and not a false prophet. The false prophets would say things, they would tickle the ears of people who would hear them, and they would tell them what they wanted to hear. There are many false prophets today uh, uh, who will tell people what they want to hear. Maybe tell them that they're good enough. Tell them not to beat themselves up in the process of sanctification when we're caused to strive in that. But there are many false prophets, and Isaiah's prophecy comes true. And uh, because he was a prophet of God. And then in 587, they are carried away to Babylon. So how did that generation feel? Well, the scripture gives us some insight into that. The Psalms, as uh, also as poetry, give us that sense of emotion behind the scriptures. And they're wonderful to read because they give that flavor, that angle of human emotion behind what's going on. And we are told in Psalm 137 the following about that generation 
that's taken into exile to Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, where there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There's this real sense of lament. Their greatest fears, Isaiah 66, 4 says, their greatest fears had come upon them. And how could this have happened, they're asking. Weren't they God's people? But Isaiah 66, 4 goes on to say, When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. These people of God who were meant to be set apart for his purposes had ignored him and they'd gone their own way. They'd taken on the customs and the false gods and the false religion and they listened to false prophets of of the nations around them. They'd done some awful, awful things. Isaiah 57 gives us an example. But come here, you sons of sorceress, offspring of an adulterer, And a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks, every luxuriant tree, who slaughter their children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? This had included child sacrifice in this awful period of rejection of God. So he was disciplining them. God disciplines his children, doesn't he? he? He disciplines us for our restoration and for our good. Hebrews 12, 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. All discipline goes on twelve eleven of the book of Hebrews. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peace of fruit of righteousness. So God, what's going on here is disciplining his nation and his children. And they were warned. The prophets warned them. Uh, they would say in Isaiah, do not, uh, who say to the seers, do not see. And the prophets, these are the words that they said to them, by the way. Don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophecy illusions. So they were having their ears tickled like New Testament false teachers uh, promised to do as well. So they weren't guiltless. They were guilty. And the exiles knew it. So there's a primary audience as well. There's also a third audience here. Isaiah has been called by some as the fifth gospel. There's so much of the foreshadowing of the ministry of the Messiah here. It's been called the fifth gospel. And many of the prophecies would have a further fulfillment. Remember, we talked about the part fulfillment and this process of fulfillment would have a further fulfillment in the ministry of our Lord. And that will become apparent as we look at the text together. So, let's look at the first part of verse 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. That repetition of the word comfort. Let's look at that together. What what does comfort mean? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, it's it's a theologically loaded term. Naham is the, is the word, and it, its two primary meanings are linked, but, but somewhat nuanced and different. The first meaning, and the, the meaning that always springs to my mind, is repentance. Yet it is 
a repentance that God manifests. There's a different word used for the repentance of man, which, which means more of a turning. Here it talks about God's repentance. It's used in Genesis 6, 6. Uh, the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So you see there an image of this only evil all the time generation of, of Noah, and it grieves God. Well, you think to yourself, well, I thought God was immutable. Malachi 3.6 uh, says, uh, I, the Lord God, do not change. And that is true. God is not changed. But God sometimes uses what are called anthropomorphisms. Um, the assignment to non-human things of human characteristics to help us in our understanding of the character of God, bringing it into language that we know and understand. And he uses the word here of um, of repentance. And it's interesting to me that he uses repentance to describe his own attitude when he looks at the sin of man, how he looked at the sin of the generation of Noah, only evil all the time, and it grieved him. It is a deep-seated feeling of grief that that wounds the man, that, that makes one realize one's sin before a holy God. And it is a supernatural power, the power of repentance. And and, and very, very powerful. So God uses that to explain to us how he feels about, about our sin. It grieves him. It, it, it repents. Uh, he repents and is sorry that he makes it. So that's one meaning, and the two are linked. Um, the second meaning here is, as translated, is, is this idea of comfort. And, and God comforts, we'll come to it in a second, but God comforts the people who are repentant. And we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. So let's look then at this word comfort of um, used here in Isaiah 40. First thing to say is it's associated with grieving and death, and it can be dispensed by humans. So you'll see it used in Genesis 24, 67 from the human perspective, when it says, Then Isaac brought her into his mo- mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death comforted by his wife so it takes it can be dispensed by humans that comfort but secondly god comforts too you'll when i said the the word is naham and you'll remember the word the book nahum which is about god comforting the northern kingdom when they were under captivity in assyria to say i'm going to reap judgment on assyria don't worry about that. And he comforts them with those messages when they would have been crying out, Lord, how can this be? What's going to happen to this evil that is being done to us? So you'll see it used there. God also uses it in the book of Isaiah. And he uses this word comfort more than any other book. The next psalm, uh, the next book is, is the Psalms. Here's an example. Um, break forth, shout in Isaiah 52, 9. Break forth. Shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. And then he says this, For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So this idea of comfort is a supernatural comfort that comes from God. It's linked to, to God as it is in both, both uses. So then we come to Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Who is to be comforted? Who are the my people? Well, first, um, I want to talk, as we bring in this second verse here, um, 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Speak tenderly, cry to her. This is another opportunity, actually, to talk about another genre used in the, in the Bible. We talked about prophecy. How do we read prophecy? Part fulfilled then, part fulfilled in the future. Well, now we come to poetry. And one of the key characteristics of poetry is the idea of parallelism. And we see it here. Speak tenderly, cry to her. Making, making one point, but said from slightly different angles. So when we're reading the Psalms in our devotional time, Always remember that there's parallelism and and meditate on that to see how is this showing me the character of God from different angles. Somebody told me something very helpful once, and I hope it'll be helpful to you when looking at parallelisms. Think of a dimmer switch. You walk into a room and you see an outline of furniture. There's slight, the light is, is somewhat on. You walk in and you see, you can make out shapes. Then you turn up the dimmer switch a little bit more and you see more of the shapes. You see more detail. And that's how parallelism works. And uh, so in in this instance, we're we're told twice here to speak tenderly and to cry to her. And and, and speak tenderly uh, and, and cry to her. Speak tenderly literally means speak to the heart. And it's a Hebrew idiom for uh, speak with, um, with compassion. But it also has the idea of a husband wooing a would-be wife. or um, So it's used in Ruth 2.13. I won't read it, but it's uh, Boaz, uh, Ruth saying to Boaz, uh, we'll read it. Um, I have found favor in your sight. Uh, you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your main ser- maidservant when Boaz looks after Ruth. So so that is how the manner in which God is, is saying to go after these pe- people, woo them and comfort them with these words, speak tenderly. So now I, I want to again talk about um, who is going to be giving this message. We talked about the, the audiences of the initial generation, the Babylonian captivity, that generation, and future generations who would be comforted by Christ. Now I, I want to look at who is the messenger here. Um, who is this? Um, so clearly this message is to, number one, Isaiah. But the interesting thing here is the verb comfort is a plural. So that begs the question, okay, who else? Um, it's not just meant there would be a different word if it was just Isaiah comfort these people. Who is this unnamed band here that is going to be doing the comforting? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Firstly, uh, I think this likely uh, refers to the future prophets. You've got Jeremiah after this and other uh, prophets that would would come, I think also to the preachers of the gospel uh, in the New Testament and the church age, you have the the preachers who go out and cry and proclaim that idea of a town crier proclaiming the word of the Lord, hear ye, hear ye, your God says this, so I think they are are inside you, and indeed all who proclaim the gospel in different environments and that message of 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 comfort. So I think that's a that's a second a group, Isaiah, future prophets. However, I think also this is another foreshadowing of the ministry of our Lord, of Christ. Why do I say that, you ask? How are you getting that? Well, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. If you'd like to turn there briefly, we'll look at look at that together. Isaiah 61, 1 uh, through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God 
is upon me because the, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. One audience will come back to that later. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, setting people free from their slavery to sin, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And then he says this, to comfort all who comfort all who mourn. Well, why do I say these refer to the Messiah? Because Jesus says himself that they refer to him. You'll remember in Luke 4, 18, he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He reads this very verse and saying, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say that to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So back to the who. Isaiah, the future band of, of gospel preachers and prophets. But then you also have the ministry of our Lord foreshadowed here. Comfort was very important to our Lord's ministry and remains so today through the Holy Spirit. How did the Lord comfort during his earthly ministry? Think of the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. A man rightly condemned for his sin, repented, and Jesus forgave him there and there. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The, the publican who was, as the Pharisee, was at the altar talking eye to eye with God, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man back there. The publican who was at the back weeping over his sin, yet he left justified, not the Pharisee. He's talking, he comforted uh, those type of people, those who, who repent. And of course, Peter, the, the examples are numerous. I could pick any. Peter, um, he comforted him in his restoration. And, and who are the people that he comforts? They all share similar characteristics. Um, in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, going back to, remember that word we talked about repentance earlier? Who are the people that Christ comforts? Who are the people that Christ comforted in the past? Who are the people in exile that were weeping over their sin? Who are the people that he ministered to who were weeping over their sin? Who are the people that he ministers to today? It's the same characteristics. In Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening in the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. So there you have uh, you have poor, you have mourn. And then in Isaiah 29, 19, it says, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Does this, all this sound familiar? Anybody ringing any bells? They should. Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord says this in his inaugural address in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those are the characteristics in that first half of the Beatitudes that describe the Christian. The people who are spiritually bankrupt uh, realize their utter bankruptcy compared to a holy God. And, here, and, and they are the ones that is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are mourning, grieved over their sinful state. The Holy Spirit has come upon them 
in a supernatural conviction, convicted them of their sin, given them a right view of themselves, number one, given them a right view of God, number two, they realize the gap. They realize there is nothing they can do, and all they can do is repent and cry out to God for mercy. Those are the people who God saves, and it always has been, and it always will be. So, comfort. We talked about this this supernatural comfort into the soul given by uh, Isaiah, given by prophets of the gospel, but driven by the power of the Lord who comforts the afflicted. I don't have time to go through this idea of comfort, but the Holy Spirit is referred to in the King James Version as the comforter. Um, There are many more many examples of this supernatural comfort transmitted through the Holy Spirit to his own in this generation. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. What is the message that's going to comfort this? What is the first and primary message that, that that, that is going to be given here? And it's this, it's the warfare is ended. The warfare is ended. Warfare is hard. I remember a story of my grandmother on the outbreak of the Second World War in in Wales. They crowded around the radio, I think they call it the wireless, and they, they gathered around and they heard the declaration of war against Germany. And I remember my grandmother saying that when that news came through, she was a young woman in her 20s. When that news came through, there was a sense of excitement felt by her and her generation of this news, a a, a kind of uh, curiosity and and excitement. That was the reaction of that generation. The older generation, who had lived through the horrors of the First World War, they were crying and weeping, realizing what that meant. And it's difficult for us in an era of physical peace to, to, to resonate, but war is hard. Israel longs for this. Israel longed for this in the promised land, and they longed for this peace from around the nations. But that's not their main enemy. You saw them buffeted from all sides, enemies that wanted to wipe them off the map. Things haven't changed. But that's not their main enemy. You see, the main enemy is mankind's, to man, is his war against God. That is the main problem that man has. Physical wars are bad, but they end. Spiritual wars go on for a decided here, but have eternal consequences and ramifications. That's far greater, friends. Man in his natural state, as we know, is at, is at enmity with God. After the fall, every man is at enmity in a natural rebellion and war against God. James 4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God. You see the Pauline language in Romans. We were enemies. This isn't a neutral, passive, calm, or ceasefire. It is a, it is a war, and man in his rebellion is warring in decisions every day. Someone who was created to glorify God and to worship God, yet turns against and wars against him, ignores him. So what is the opposite of war? Well, of course, it's, it's peace. And this is very interesting. Peace is one of the main benefits of the gospel. 
to all who repent and believe in Christ. I was tempted to say the main benefit, but who am I to? There are so many benefits of the gospel transmitted to us who don't deserve it. But peace is, 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 is a main benefit of the gospel and, and to all who repent and believe. You see it in the ministry of Christ. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. We'll, we'll recognize these verses. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. He goes on. There will be no end to the increase of your government or of peace. So what peace are we talking about here? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This idea of peace to all men, it's not that, it's peace. The correct translation is peace to all on whom God has favor. It's not a physical peace. It's peace with God that Christ came to give. In the opening words, this is very interesting, in the opening words of Paul's epistle, uh, uh, chapter 5 of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Paul has just established it is justification by faith alone. And then he goes on in the first words of Romans 5, this great verse on justification. Therefore, having been justified, how are we justified? By faith, not through works. By, and he proves that in the previous chapter. We're justified by faith. We bring nothing to the party. We're justified by faith. What does he then go on to say? He could have said anything. He could have said, we have uh, been forgiven. We have been all true. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's that's true. And that is, can you imagine the, the Spirit of God dwelling in believers? We have been glorified. Yes, we've been glorified. We will be glorified. He could have said any other things. What does he say? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And the main benefits. The, the, the war is over. As the verse said, the war is ended. Paul goes on to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his faith. We were enemies. There was nothing good that we did. We weren't claiming our way towards him. This was a gracious act, a free act of grace given to all who repent and believe and, and not because of works. It's, we, it's the opposite of earning favor with God. In fact, that's what makes Christianity different to all the other religions. I was having a conversation with a, with a, with a friend, um, a Jewish uh, friend, and he'd been reading uh, some, uh, some stories to his son about Christ. And, and he says, well, how do you know? How do you see all these other religions, all these other people saying that they know the way. They, I said, I see it far more simply than that. I'm not confused by that whatsoever because you whittle them down and they come back to works. They work their way. Now, that can be works through taking the of the sacraments or going to the priest. That could be works of saying a prayer three, four times a day. You do that and you'll be great. Okay, that's fine. That could be things like don't drink hot drinks that some have. So it's far simpler there is justification by faith alone that it as an enemy to God, and that is our faith, that is our God, and we know it because we have done nothing to deserve it. And everything else says you just work a little bit better, try a bit harder, you'll get there. Two, there's just there's false religion which talks about justification by works, and there is ours which is justification by faith alone. So we were enemies; we didn't bring anything to this. 
This isn't the false peace that we, we talked about. Um, and this is also something that Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. A very interesting image of the wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up and ref- toss up refuse and mud. The nations and the wicked are likened to the sea. Well, if you look again, this, this poetic language brings emotion to what's really gone on here. You see the sea, it doesn't stop, it keeps coming, it keeps going. Restless, it's moving, it's never at peace. And that is the peace that, that we have, that we do have, is that stillness, unlike, uh, unlike the, those who rebel. There's no natural ground here either. This isn't a, uh, there's no ceasefire. You're either at war or you're at peace with God. And this is not a, ma- a battle that man can win. This war cannot be won. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a, of a living God. If you spend your life striving to win that war, striving for personal holiness uh, of your own works, ignoring... As Romans 1.18 says, it's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You know there's a God. Every Romans says everyone knows that. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then this is a war that cannot be won. In Isaiah 34.8, there's a very solemn picture of uh, what happens to Edom in this instance. But it's seen to parallel the eternal destruction of, of those who don't bow their knee to, to the Lord. It says, for the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone and its land will become a burning pitch. And then it says this, it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. It will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. That image of destruction. Yet this need not be our end. Christ comes, he brings peace. He offers peace to those who repent and cry out. There's no works will ever build your way there. It's crying out to God. Uh, and, and again, he gives it to the repentance. David says it beautifully in Psalm 51. Hear these words, my friends, this morning. A broken and a contrite heart, he won't turn away. He doesn't turn away the meek, the mourn. So, next, we, we see that the war is ended. And part of that war, a part of a necessity for that war to be ended, is that iniquity must be pardoned. The next part of our verse, that her war is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Well, what does that mean? Well, again, iniquity, one of the key theological terms in the Old Testament for sin. Uh, This word has particular connotations with the idea of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry are the things, the desires that we have of our heart that we then say that we can't be happy without and we're prepared to disobey God to get them. So that's, that's a good test to say a desire over here which God gives can be good, but idolatry is something where you go over and you say, nope, I'm not going to be happy without that. There is one thing we, we can't be happy without and that's God. That's, he, he is our God. We're meant to worship him. However, we place things in there. Good test for our hearts. Are there, is there anything in our lives right now that um, we are not going to be happy unless we get? And is there anything in our lives right now that we're prepared to disobey God's commands to get? That's idolatry. And this word 
awan or iniquity is 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 uh, linked to that. The second part is, um, and and by the way, the Israeli people and us before Christ were um, chasing after idols. The idols would give us the messages of the false prophets: peace, peace, promise to medicate, promise. Uh, promise all these things to us, but they were false. Nothing can satisfy. It's that restlessness, that searching after something to satisfy. We were made to worship God. That's the only thing that can satisfy us. So the second word there is is interesting. Also, it's it's this idea of pardoned, meaning meaning uh, satisfaction on behalf of God. So God is 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 pleased with this 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 pardoning that's gone on. Uh, it's used in Micah 6, 7. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, what sort of sacrifice would do this? We know that the sacrifice rams, they didn't do it. If they did it, they wouldn't have to do them again. They kept on sacrificing week after week. False religions, they had to dispense some stuff by whoever's standing up front. They, they don't do it. This, this is a... This is a sacrifice that's different what on earth could please god in this sense well of course you see god can't wink at sin he can't just look over it people would love to do it and you'll hear messages oh i'm sure god will forgive we we, we don't have a right opinion of ourselves, and we don't have a right opinion of god when we think like that when we do get those things right we'll realize it's abhorrent to him it grieves him and he can't wink at it so something has to be done about it when we talk about the characteristics of God, you'll hear people saying, well, isn't God meant to be all love? Isn't God all powerful? True and true. He is. But scant attention is paid sometimes to God's justice, God's holiness, God's righteousness. He can't be around sin. Something's got to be done. So what on earth could, be par- could pardon our in- an iniquity here in a way that pleases God? Well, it's only that of the Messiah, God's own son, who lived his perfect life and died on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. It couldn't be anybody else. He had to be man. He had to be God. He had to be perfect. It was him and he went. And Isaiah says in 53.10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a gift offering. God loves the world so much that he did this. He sent his only son to, to be this offering for us. How humbling. And he sent him in the form of a servant. And he did it. He finished the work. And he offers it now. And he comforts those who seek him. And who, who, who want him. Finally, what does this mean at the end here? That she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The last part of verse 2 in Isaiah 40. Well, you can look at this from a negative standpoint, meaning, is he somehow going to punish them twice? Is that what the double means here? I, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Number one is, the context here is one of comfort. God is comforting his people, and that is not a comforting message that you're going to get double of your uh, punishments p- uh, paid. Uh, number two uh, is that this is not the second reason why I don't think that it's a, a negative doubling of the sin uh, uh, is because that's not commensurate with God's instructions in the Old Testament. Um, the punishment 
laid out by God in his law was that it had to be appropriate for the crime. You remember an eye for an eye, etc. What God is saying there is it has to be proportionate. That's the message of that. And it has to be delivered by authorities. People take that into their own hands. It has to be delivered by the authorities that God ordains. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that she has received this idea of receiving. Grace is a free gift and it's utterly undeserved. Um, Christ took on himself the full punishment that we de- deserved. We did nothing. I, I, so I, I think this is, this is a gracious, a positive understanding of what this doubling of the sin is. And I think that what it means is that, it, that God will graciously, graciously give his children something that far outweighs peace. Something that far outweighs this idea of just being at peace with God, which is wonderful and necessary to be around him far greater than the forgiveness of our iniquity and our sins. When Paul was praying for the Ephesian church, you think, what on earth could the Apostle Paul be praying for these people? Is he praying for freedom from persecution, freedom from false teachers? He doesn't. He prays and he starts his prayer by this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. And then this, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The riches of his glory in the inheritance of the saints. Now, this is why I've called this the the bountiful um, inheritance that, that we have, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. And Paul is saying, guys, set your eyes on that. All this stuff going on around you, none of this will matter. Set your eyes on Christ and wait till you see the glorious inheritance that he's stored up for us. Not only has he declared peace with us, he has adopted us. He's adopted us. He's made it his own children by adoption so that we will receive this glorious inheritance that waits for us. Set your eyes on that and everything is in perspective and we're able to to live as God wants us to live, because we know that we're not here long, but we go into this glorious inheritance. That's the double for the sins, far more than simply the war is ended and your iniquity is pardoned. You see, this is no amnesty. This is no, there are no reparations required for our warfare. We're not then, okay, I'm declaring peace, but you've got to do this. Make it up to everybody who you hurt. There's none of that. This is not an earthly forgiveness. We would do that. We'd say, okay, that's fair enough in our, in our flesh. We would do that, but I want this back. You see nations doing that. You see nations doing that after warfare. Reparations, get that. That's not our God. Our God declares amnesty and he graciously gives to us the free gift of eternal life and life forevermore with him in his family as the children of God. This, this is our God. Let's love him. Let's worship him. Let's obey him. And if you're fighting him, repent and believe that all of this glorious inheritance, the peace, the iniquity, the forgiveness of sins, and the glorious inheritance can be yours too. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word. We just stare in marvel at this utterly unworldly message of forgiveness that you have given uh, to us, this beautiful poetic imagery of the gospel given to us by the prophet Isaiah that our war is ended. And we thank you, Lord, that our war is ended. 
And we thank you that we can be at peace. Give us that strength. Remind us of that glorious truth, Lord. Remind us where we're going. Let us not be buffeted about by the waves and tossed by the seas, but let us stand on the solid rock of your word and of Christ. Embolden us, Lord. Please be with this church as they seek to proclaim your message uh, here and strengthen each one of us. Let us remind, remind us that the greatest privilege that we have is as being your children with your abiding presence. And we have peace, Lord. Peace, because we're no longer at war with you. That has been settled on the cross. And we just thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.